It is not easy to be pure in thought and in deed, living in a culture that is as saturated with sex as ours is. And yet, if we live according to the wisdom of the Word of God, as found in the book of Proverbs and many other places, we will see that it is important for us to guard our purity. I invite you to open your Bible to Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. The followers of Jesus Christ at the close of the 20th century face a daily bombardment of our minds and our senses with images and ideas that are the antithesis of biblical values. For example, talk shows, whether on television or radio, seem to have no limits to the depths of perversion and depravity which they will explore with their guests and usually condone. Newspapers and other publications offer specialized classified ads where lonely and often desperate people advertise themselves in what really amounts to little more than a sex market. The entertainment industry glamorizes every form of human wickedness while at the same time taking aim at traditional values with mockery and disdain. And some advertisers have decided that sex is a good sell. And so they offer their jeans or their underwear or perfume or soap or toothpaste with sexual titillation. It is not easy to live godly in this age. But it has never been easy. Even in the first century, the apostle wrote to Titus, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Sexual temptation was as real and as prominent in the first century as it is as we close in on the 21st century. And it has been true throughout the ages. Even Martin Luther commented about it, saying, We can't do anything about birds flying over our head but we can prevent them building a nest in our hair. That was his way of addressing the problem in the 16th century. Moral purity is a precious possession which the wise person will carefully guard. Listen to the words of the Lord. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight that... You may maintain discretion, and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. 
Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Proverbs address this matter of moral purity. And as we look at the content of the Word of God, we see in the first place that whether in Proverbs or in other texts, there is a warning. And the warning is simply this, sin is not what it seems to be. You see, sin presents what seems to be an opportunity for fun, excitement, and satisfaction of desire. And yet its true payoff is guilt, shame, pain, emptiness, disease, and death. Sin is not what it seems to be. And we see that here as the writer addresses the problem of an adulteress. And let me make it clear that while the language of Proverbs addresses the adulteress, the same can be true of the adulterer. The point of Proverbs is not the gender of the person who is in sin, it is the sin itself. But here it addresses the adulteress and it says that her words are sweet and smooth. Isn't that true? Some get caught up in those sweet and smooth words at the office, listening to a sad tale of hurt and rejection. And they begin to feel sorry for this person and to sympathize and to listen. And then that genuine sympathy and care begins to take on a different form as it continues. Fantasy begins as to how it might be different if only the two had met earlier. And sometimes that kind of fantasy leads to acting out the dreams of passion. The words begin sweet and smooth, but in the end they are like gall. They're bitter. They're like a sword. They're sharp and they cut. The end result is not what was expected at the beginning. It all seemed so easy and appropriate and right. And yet in the process of time that evolved into what sin really is and becomes. One of the children a while back gave me a piece of candy. And it began quite sweet, tasted good, and I thought, well, this is not bad at all. It wasn't long before that outward coating was gone, and I got down to what the real stuff was, and I can't believe kids like it. <laughs> Sour, bitter, ugly, nasty candy. When I was reading these words, I thought of that piece of candy. It begins in the mouth so sweet and delicious, and then becomes something that you hadn't expected. Sin is deceitful that way. It never reveals 
its consequences. It allures with immediate satisfaction, but inevitably it brings its victims to terrible loss. The writer of Hebrews warns about this character of sin that we call deceit. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin is deceptive. Sin is a mocker. And the warning of the Word of God over and over again is, sin is not what it seems. And following up on that, there is a rationale that is laid out for us, especially here in the larger context of Proverbs 5. We might summarize it with this sentence. The rationale for being careful of sin is, that your future, your welfare, your well-being is at stake. Yours. There are good reasons why moral chastity should be guarded by every one of us. In the first place, immoral behavior costs. It is not free. It is very expensive. In verses 8 through 14, we understand some of the costs of immoral behavior. In the first place, in verse 9, one gives his prime to another. He gives his best to another where there is no real appreciation for it. He says, lest you give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel. You see, in immoral behavior, part of a person is disseminated. Part of a person is given away to another. And the warning of Proverbs is that that inevitably is given to someone who is cruel. It leads not to security, but to insecurity. It leads not to acceptance, but to rejection. And certainly it leads to loss of self-respect. Write it down in your heart that a transaction of this kind of a transaction is one of lust and nothing more. And when one is involved in immoral behavior, he gives away himself. He gives away his prime. She gives away her best without appreciation in return. verse 10, we see that when one is involved in immoral behavior, he risks his future to a stranger. He says, lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. One who is involved in immorality is risking his whole future. He risks his financial future and security as well as his reputation and his character. The cost of immorality can hardly be calculated because of the possible consequences of that kind of sin. And yet we hear people casually in the world casually say, well, I think people need to live together 
then they can really know if they love each other and it will lead to happier marriages. Have you ever heard that? That's promoted on Phil Donahue. That's the gospel of Phil. As well as other talk show hosts. And yet a study was done by two professors, one at the University of Chicago and the University of Michigan was the other. And their conclusion was that cohabiting experiences significantly increase young people's acceptance of divorce. They concluded that the link between living together and divorce runs both ways. Increased divorce rates cause more young people to choose non-marital relationships, while cohabitation may have a feedback effect of increasing the acceptance and likelihood of divorce. The two professors did not compare divorce rates in their study, but cited other studies that found that couples who live together before marriage have divorce rates 50 to 100 percent higher than those who don't. The article goes on from St. Paul Pioneer Press, September 3rd, 1992, entitled, Couples Who Lived Together More Likely to Divorce. Living together does not produce a healthy marriage. Even studies in the world affirm that, but God's Word has declared it for thousands of years. Indeed, when you are involved in immoral behavior, it risks your future. It doesn't secure it. Then verse 11, we see that one who is immoral faces the likelihood of disease. At the end of your life, writes the writer, the author of this chapter, Solomon, at the end of your life you will, find, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. What is he talking about? He is talking about diseases that you pick up in immoral behavior. Never have these diseases been more of an epidemic than today. Never. And some of them are coming back resistant to drugs that have been used to cure them in the past. And then, of course, there is AIDS. Now, we recognize that AIDS does not only come by immoral behavior. But we'd also understand that the large percent of it does. And AIDS has no cure. And we have people who are talking about safe sex. As though outside of monogamous marriage there was such a thing. The facts of the matter are that safe sex outside of monogamous marriage is a joke. It is a fantasy that is created by a culture that rejects moral absolutes. It is created by a culture that is determined to persist in decadent behavior. And so it's created what it calls safe sex. And that is being taught to your young people and mine in our public school system. Because that's the curriculum that's been written. Oh, abstinence is mentioned, but because it's so unlikely, says the curriculum, therefore here's what safe sex is. It's a lie. One who is involved in immoral behavior faces the likelihood of disease and ending his life early because of it. 
And then we see in verses 12 to 14 that one who is involved in immoral behavior ends his life with ruin and regrets. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. What he's doing is he's quoting what one says at the end of his immoral life. He regrets. He says, I wouldn't listen. They tried to tell me. And now here in public, so everybody knows, I end my life in utter ruin. The one who lives immorally lives a life of regret. And beginning early on and culminating with death, he says, if only, if only. The hour of pleasure results in a lifetime of regret. Immoral behavior costs its followers. It costs them their prime, their future, their health, their life's fulfillment. What a price to pay! Poverty, disgrace, and disease, followed by death. And yet there are many who are willing to lay down the price. The rationale for living chastely and purely is that your welfare is at stake. And God lays out the fact that immoral behavior costs. Why be morally pure? Because your future is at stake. Immoral behavior not only costs, we see that immoral behavior captivates. Look at verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? Verse 22. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. Immoral behavior captivates. Now, in contrast to that, the writer points out the bliss of marital love. And he says that in the intimacy and the privacy of the marriage relationship, there is a wonderful freedom. He uses several pictures to describe that in verses 15 and following. What he says is to find satisfaction, fulfillment, and contentment in your spouse. Be captivated by your spouse's love. Do not allow anyone else to share what is private. To share what is especially yours that you give to each other. These are oriental images. And they describe for us the wholesome alternative to immorality. Immorality. 
They describe to us the joys of sexuality as God has designed it. It is wonderful. But he frankly points out as well the guilt and the immorality, the embarrassment that this adulterous kind of behavior brings. He says it is a bondage. It is a prison for the soul. It enslaves to habits of passion and lust. And so what is the rationale, he points out? Why be morally pure? Because that alone, you see, provides true freedom and joy, which God wants us to experience in our sexuality. Is God trying to keep us from fun? That's been the devil's lie since Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. Eve, you don't know what you're missing out on. And that is exactly what Satan is seeking to sell to people today in the matter of sexuality. You see, God knows where true fulfillment and joy can be found. And he tells us he has designed for us to know that, to experience it, to enjoy it to its fullest. But he warns us about going outside the bonds of marriage to find it. Immoral behavior costs, it captivates, and finally it condemns. Verse 21, For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. You see, there is nothing that happens in secret from God. You can close the doors, you can pull the blinds, You cannot close out God. God sees everything and knows it. He is never looking the other way. In Romans 2, verse 16, it says, God will judge men's secrets. There are those today living in secret, hiding in the closet. And thinking that no one will find out, no one will ever know how wrong they are. God knows. And one day God will call to account those who have lived immorally. For example, we have these words in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul writes to the believers in the church at Ephesus and he says, But among you... There must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Did you hear that? He says among God's people, there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of, any, or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. Does he have to make it any more clear? Which are out of place. For this you can be sure, 
no immoral, impure, or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Immoral behavior brings condemnation from God. It causes one to come under his wrath. Why be morally pure? Because God is the final judge, and he will not ignore the slightest infraction of his righteous law. But someone says, I don't respect that law. I don't believe in it. I don't give heed to it. It makes no difference whatsoever. God has established it, and you will give account. All of us will. It's a hard message. It is not easy to live a pure life in a sex-saturated society. What if someone has already fallen? What if a man or a woman has already given himself or herself to immoral behavior? Is God's wrath inevitable? The answer to that is, happily, no, it's not. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. There is cleansing in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ from the most gross and perverse of sexual sins. God saved some of the Corinthians. They were washed. They were cleansed. They were sanctified by Jesus Christ. And he is still doing the same for those today who come to him in repentance, confession, and faith. Now the fact is that the consequences that arise from immorality may still have to be faced. God's forgiveness does not automatically erase the consequences that can come because of immoral behavior. But he can and he will forgive the guilt and the shame of immorality. If you are a Christian and you have failed God in this area of your life, God is able to restore you too. God is not more gracious to the unsaved than he is to his own children. He will wash and cleanse and forgive you and give you a new start. You must determine in your heart that by the grace of God, you will live virtuously from this point on. It does no good to despair over your past. Acknowledge it and confess it for what it is and ask God for that new beginning today and let him give it to you. And live purely from this point on. You see, your welfare is at stake. And God loves you so much that he has commanded you to keep yourself pure.
from sexual sins. Enjoy your sexuality. God has given that to you as a gift. It is good. It is holy. It is wonderful. Used the way that God says to use it. But he says, keep yourself pure from sin which usurps and makes ugly what he's given for good. He says in Hebrews 13, 4, keep your marriage bed pure. How do you guard yourself from moral impurity? Let me suggest three things to you in conclusion this morning. First of all, be alert. In Proverbs chapter 7, verse 1, he reiterates, My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call understanding your kinsman. They will keep you from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words. Be alert. The point is here, don't play with sin. Don't think that sin is a toy. It is not. Recognize it for what it truly is. Don't redefine sin and try to deceive yourself that it's okay in this instance. Do not play the fool. Don't be seduced. Remember the costs. Remember what you risk. Be alert. Secondly, build walls. Not only be alert, but build walls. In the sex-saturated society, walls are essential. They will keep you from becoming prey to sexual sin. Let me suggest several walls. First, keeping away from sin's borders. There are some people who walk just as close to sin as they can without actually stepping over the border. Stay away from sin's borders. You go too close to the bars and that animal on the other side will grab you and bring you through. Stay away from sin's borders. Be careful of the kind of movies that you go to watch. And don't lie to yourself and say, well, I, I didn't really know that that was in there until I got there and then it was too late. Have you ever walked out of a movie? Don't be afraid to excuse yourself and leave if you didn't know something was in there. Stay away from pornography. Gentlemen, this is a massive problem for us. The majority of the men in our church, if it is like any other church in this country, fight the battle of pornography. Stay away from it. With pornography, you are greasing the slide into hell, the hell of sexual sin.
Stay away from places and people and situation where you know lusts await you. Stay away from sin's borders. Secondly, put this wall into place. Decide before temptations come what you will say and what you will do. Just imagine yourself in any situation and determine ahead of time, if this ever happens to me, this is what I'm going to say and this is what I'm going to do. Maybe it's in a parked car. And a request is made of you or certain actions take place. You know ahead of time exactly what you're going to do and how you're going to respond to that person who says he loves you. Put the wall in place. I believe that Joseph had already thought out ahead of time what he was going to do in case Potiphar's wife went too far. And on the day that she did, he ran, just exactly like he had planned. Flee youthful lusts, Paul writes to Timothy. It may be in an office relationship. And you can see right now where that conversation that you had last week could lead you. Plan right now what you're going to say tomorrow to bring an end to that sympathetic relationship that you have begun to establish. Put up the wall. A third wall is to hide God's word in your heart as a prevention. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Lustful thoughts cannot take deep root and produce fruit in a person who is hiding God's word on a regular basis in his heart. Temptation can come, but there will be no rootage because the word of God will keep rooting it out so it cannot take root. Another wall, establish accountability with a trusted friend. You find someone that loves you and trusts you of the same sex and establish accountability with that person or that group of two or three or five. That's a wall. And learn to ask yourselves the hard questions about what you've been reading, who you've been talking with, where you've gone, what your private habits are. That is a wall that will help protect you from sexual immorality. But I've left the one that I think is most important to the last. And that is the wall of growing a strong marriage with your God-given partner. Grow a strong marriage. Almost always, I won't say always because I can't prove that, but I think I could come up with evidence, if pressed, to say that almost always, when there is a failure in a marriage and one of the spouses gives in to adultery, that failure can be traced back to the marriage. And to the fact that that marriage somewhere had lost its zip. Let me tell you something. You keep building your marriage. You keep it fun. 
you keep it exciting. Both of you work on it together. Make it a project so that your marriage never gets to the point that a partner is open to temptation in an unusual way. Satisfy one another. Learn one another. Enjoy one another. You say, well, I'm single. I'm not married yet. It's a good reason to get married, guys. Some of you are so afraid of marriage, and yet you're burning with lust. Do you understand that marriage is God's gift to you? You say, well, I haven't found the perfect person yet. Well, thank God, because if you had, she would marry an imperfect person. There are not two perfect people who find each other. There are two per imperfect people who fall in love and learn to love each other deeply, despite the imperfections. Now, I recognize there's a such thing as the gift of singleness, and some people have that, and some people don't. You need to consider what God's wonderful gift to you is. And develop that marriage so that 50 years into it, you are happier and more content and more satisfied with each other than you were the day you were married. I have to go on. A third suggestion as to how to guard your moral purity. Be alert, build walls. Number three, bear fruit. Because, you see, one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And it touches on this matter of your sexuality. Bring the struggles of your flesh to the cross. And there die to that flesh and yield yourself to the Holy Spirit and let Him bring forth the fruit of self-control in your life. I want to close with this story written by someone who knew the meaning of sexual sin and who out of his own experience wrote several chapters of the book of Proverbs. His name is Solomon. I was looking out the window of my house one day and saw a simple-minded lad, a young man, lacking common sense, walking at twilight down the street to the house of this wayward girl, a prostitute. She approached him, saucy and pert and dressed seductively. She was the brash, coarse type often seen in the streets and markets, soliciting at every corner for men to be her lovers. She put her arms around him and kissed him, and with a saucy look, she said, I was just coming to look for you, and here you are. Come home with me, and I'll fix you a wonderful dinner, and after that, well, my bed is spread with lovely colored sheets of finest linen imported from Egypt, perfumed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come on, let's take our fill of love until the morning, for my husband is away on a long trip. He has taken a wallet full of money with him and won't return for several days. So she seduced him with her pretty speech, her coaxing and her wheedling, until he yielded to her. He couldn't resist her flattery. He followed her as an ox going to the butcher, or as a stag that is trapped, 
waiting to be killed with an arrow through its heart. He was as a bird flying into a snare, not knowing the fate awaiting it there. Listen to me, young men, and not only listen, but obey. Don't let your desires get out of hand. Don't let yourself think about her. Don't go near her. Stay away from where she walks, lest she tempt you and seduce you. For she has been the ruin of multitudes. A vast host of men have been her victims. If you want to find the road to hell, look for her house. Let's pray. This is a heavy message. And it's one that all of us in some way can relate to. I hope that right there where you're seated, you'll let the Spirit of God do what He needs to do this morning. That you will surrender yourself to Christ's Lordship. And ask Him to make you clean and pure. And to keep you that way. I pray that you will guard your purity. Your own welfare is at stake. Your life, your future, your health. Sin is never what it seems to be. If you've begun to walk down that road toward the house that Solomon warns about, listen to where he says it leads. And turn around and get back where you belong. And build those walls in your life. Father, we live in an ungodly and wicked generation. And yet it is not terribly unlike previous generations, and particularly that one in which the church was planted 2,000 years ago. It is filled with passion and lust that is perverted and degraded and then approved and explained and defined away. Father, I pray that we who are your people will not allow a hint of it to be in our lives. May we live as children of the light. Wash us this morning from our sin. Cleanse us from our iniquity. Open our eyes to our foolishness. And may we walk the path that is far from the borders of sexual sin. In Jesus' name, amen.